Welcome to another episode of Manny Talk Shooting, the show where I talk to individuals from all across the shooting industry. We talk competition, self-defense, and concealed carry. If you enjoy this content, check out our YouTube channel, Manny Things. Without further ado, let me introduce you to our guest. I am with the 2020 Limited National Champion, Mason Lane. Mason, how are you doing tonight, sir? Excellent, man. How are you? I am fantastic. It's been a great but busy day. Things going well on your side of the woods? Yep. No, similarly, I am very busy. I haven't actually gotten a chance to touch a gun since Series 7, which I shot last Saturday. I'm recording on a Thursday. So it's been a pretty busy week uh, of not shooting for a change, which is both distressing and refreshing. Yeah. Get a little bit of break, but sometimes the breaks yeah, but, are but, not what you want. But not really. Yeah. Yeah. I can say I know what you feel because I haven't touched a gun two weeks now just been didn't been too busy intentionally yeah not intentionally then yeah not intentionally i think i've picked them up to move them off the bench but that's about it <laughs> nice i like it yep yep well mason you i am honored to be having a show with you tonight but for some of my listeners who might not know who you are mason who are you and how did you get into shooting uh i'm mason lane uh, like you mentioned it the most noteworthy accomplishment i've made is winning nationals last year at limited uh, in 2020 uh in terms of shooting i'm a gm in a couple of divisions and stuff but sort of uh that accomplishment sort of is the cliff note uh, i've been shooting for like give or take eight or nine years uh i got into shooting i was actually in scouting uh so i got involved pretty early i got involved when i was like 13 or 14 and i was in scouting and we me and all my peers had sort of aged out of the whole teaching kids how to put on band-aids and we'd all sort of accomplished all the the stuff that we wanted to in that that sort of endeavor so we all had a shared interest in shooting and started our own uh, youth group for that specifically uh, so that was sort of how I got involved. And I just basically, I realized it was something I wanted to be good at. My my folks are really good in, about, about supporting uh, the fact that I was really serious about doing it. And I just took it a lot more seriously than all my peers did. Uh, attracted the people that wanted to help me out and the rest is kind of history. Okay, that's pretty fantastic. And um, you, um, what rank did you meet in scouts? I, I finished the whole Eagle thing. I got two palms as well. So for the uninitiated, after you make the whole Eagle rank and all that, you get a if you continue to accrue merit badges for special interests and stuff like that, like every, every half dozen or so you get another palm, which is, you know, a level of prestige that not, most people don't get, but I was, I was, I was like, I finished it when I was like 14 or 13 or 14. So I was, I had, had a lot of time to spare before between sort of finishing that and getting into shooting where I was still mm -hmm. very heavily involved with that. Well, that's something we hold in common. I also am an Eagle scout. I cool, was man. one of those cusps of, Unfortunately, my troop folded like a year, like seven months before I turned 18 and yep. I got picked up by another troop who helped me finish, which was, that's good. My, I think my board to get my Eagle was after my birthday. So it was, yeah, all the work was done. It's like, pray to God. Right. Yeah. No, I realized that I, there was other stuff that I, that I was going to want to do. And I, I realized if I didn't, attack it aggressively i wasn't going to want to do it because i looked at the kids that were around 16 or 17 when i was just getting involved and i'm like they seem kind of over this like i should probably just do it quickly if i'm going to do it <laughs> mm -hmm. so yeah and for most of those people it seems like their parents more wanted them to do it than they actually wanted to do it definitely a lot of cases yeah mm -hmm. well on a, on a side note um you do teach classes mm -hmm. um but who have you taken training from uh so sort of in chronological order i got into shooting 
and I got attracted the uh, the attention of the SIG Academy, which was local to us, both through sort of some relationships my dad had and just through being involved in scouting. And uh, so I had a coach that that sort of got me from like zero to GM or zero to M or whatever you have you, who's uh, Jerry Tatro, who doesn't shoot all the time anymore, but he's around the Virginia area. And he's a really good instructor. He's teach classes out of the academy all the time. And he was one of my first mentors that was sort of shooting specific. Uh, of course, you know, my folks were are like decently conservative or whatever. We've always public servants. My dad was a cop. My mom worked in a police station separately. So they got me involved in, you know, outdoors and shooting and stuff general. But in terms of having a coach, Jerry was the first one I had. Uh, more contemporarily, sort of after uh, I made around MGM level, Jerry kind of moved away, had other sort of life stuff he had to do. I sort of became more self-taught where I sought out uh, as much information as I could through guys like Wansick uh, and Ben through their literature and throughout the time when around what 2017 or 2016 or whatever it was when they launched PSTG, I was one of the, one of the, the original people to sort of be on that bandwagon. So I started sourcing information through there as well. So sort of a smorgasbord of different people, a lot of different people have influenced the style I have both in, you know, the actual movement or the philosophy that I sort of take on board or what have you, but I've had relatively limited, limited formal training until, until more recently, until like 2017. Okay. And you you say you're a lot of self-taught. Now, is that more through the internet and like PSTG kind of stuff, or is that kind of like self-exploration first? I wouldn't say it's through self-exploration. That would be kind of, I don't know if conceited is the word, but just sort of misleading. I mean, I, I, I've been good about more recently sourcing information that can sort of spice up what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that's honestly one of the biggest things that separates good shooters from great shooters is the ability to seamlessly onboard new information and sort of assimilate it into what it is you're doing. And as of 2017, when PSTG started to firmly come out, that was when I started to get really good about doing that. Kind of the in-between years, there was sort of a dark age in my shooting between sort of making like M-class and sort of branching through to start to be consistently performing on like a 90% or better uh, level at a nationals there there was a, an in-between time there where i just kind of spun my wheels like i had gotten as good as i could really get at the shooting bit at the classifier skills before really sourcing new information that lasted about two years between like 2015 and 16. Hmm. interesting but i guess everybody hits kind of those plateaus where they've got to like yeah. break out of their shell and find something yeah between 2015 and 16 nationals i finished like 80 88 and 89 percent respectively and I jumped from to, to 94 and change the next year uh, from like, you know, 22nd place to like third place. So there was a, a, a huge watershed moment there where I kind of put some pieces together and started putting together new information that really invigorated the training. So it's an important thing for sure. It's not just about sustained effort over time. Because mm -hmm. I think even I am a very person who absorbs a lot of media. Like I listen to the PSTG uh, podcast now with uh, sometimes you're on there. I think even you and uh, I, think, I don't know if it was you and Bradley were on there might've been, I know it was at least mm -hmm. Bradley, but talking about how progression is not linear. Not at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it, that's what most people find is like, I always, that's always sort of the way I, I, I encapsulate that core concept is, is it's not just about sustained effort over time. If it's, if the sustained effort is, is sort of hard to get for you, if the motivation, like if you're like an Instagram celebrity or whatever is, is, is the part that you have to struggle to find, you're probably never going to make it very far anyway, frankly. But for a lot of people the the sustained effort over time is there, it's just the, the academic effort to sort of study and improve 
that uh, leaves room to be desired, right? Mm -hmm. So for like that sort of era, that two-year era there, that was definitely the case for me where like I had gotten as good as I I could through traditional, through conventional methods that I was aware of. And I just didn't source new information in a way that really beget any sort of meaningful progress. Hmm. Now, that is something interesting. I'm going to have to look at that and be more thoughtful. So like, the simplest way to think about it, right, is this mm -hmm. is something Phil Strader said to me once, is as long as you're continuing to get better, just keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, like, in my, am I shooting right now? Like, I see I'm doing better right now than I was at the end of last season. So I'm not worried about, about like, whether or not I'm doing new stuff. or I don't really need to actively seek out a ton of new information. I still will just by habit. But there's plenty of stuff for me to work on that's going to continue to get me better. Uh, and that, that era I'm sort of describing, that wasn't the case at all. Like I, mm -hmm. I was avoiding the uncomfortable parts of my shooting and not really sourcing the information as necessary. Different way to say the same thing everyone else talks about, really. Mm -hmm. Well, I like how Phil puts it. Do what you're doing right now if it's working. I mean. Yeah, if, if you're getting better, continue to get better. Just keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, Mason, I know you won limited nationals. You're typically a production guy. But what? Historically, yeah. I, there's a lot of people who are the gear centric people. So I want, let's get that out of the way. What do you shoot like a, a mag spelt kind of thing real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, uh, for, for gun, I've, I've been a dedicated SIG shooter since I made master with a Glock 34. And then uh, right around that time I had the support of the SIG Academy. And uh, the second the, the P320 came out, I got it like instantly and I started shooting that. So I was, I was one of the, the original shooters with with that gun uh so i've been using one of those from the onset so currently for co i use the the legions the x5 legions uh i use sig dots the the sig romeo 3 max dots those seem to be pretty good so far in my experience uh as far as internal work or any kind of aftermarket mods i go through gray guns for everything because they help me out and they're a really good company they're uh as far as their you know their gear they guarantee everything they do for life if you have any issue at all you basically message them and say, hey, this is what's going on. They'll, they'll help you out, which is kind of cool. And in a huge sense, guys like us, you know, uh, USPSA shooters, they appreciate their value as, as R&D. And Bruce is a former competitor on a pretty high level himself from like way back. Mm -hmm. So they're really good about that. As far as uh, other ancillary gear, like base pads and stuff, uh, I use pen and group stuff. Everything you can get off the Ben Sticker Pro Shop, like all that kind of crap. I use uh, GX products, holsters, DA belts, you know, CR speed pouches, all, all the stock standard crap you pretty much expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's only like a few, there's a little odds and ends different people use, but pretty much everyone uses the same conglomerate of gear. Surprisingly. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's, it, I think, honestly, the, the reason, the, what attracts most people to the, sort of those stock standard options is more so reliability and durability than it is really any sort of performance aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I, important. Mm hmm. I, I originally started with ghost pouches and then I learned to hate them. And then I went to, yeah, I, I, I bought some of those like way, way long ago. I started using CRSP pouches first and I just kind of stuck with them because they work, but I bought some, some ghost pouches when I was setting up a gun for a belt for three gun. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, these are truly horrible. Like both to set up <laughs> and to like keep in one piece. Like these are atrocious. It's like, it's not like they're bad, right? Like there's not like they're in an objective standpoint, they're bad. Like plenty of high, very high level shooters use them, but I think they're, fucking garbage mm -hmm. well, especially with the leaf spring in the back the, then you have to remove the leaf spring yeah. take it off the belt and rotate it yep 
yeah, just alienated my chance at a ghost sponsorship right there, but it is it's, what it is. That's okay. Ben, <laughs> ben Steger Pro Shop, take my money. Yeah, there you go. I, I don't know. I've sent Tim Myers so much money like over the past year. Just like, here you go. Just send me more crap. Yeah, he's used to it. Yeah. I mean, he's he's pretty much got to have the UPS guy and the the mail postal service guy just be like, how many am I taking today? Yeah, no All kidding, right? Yep. Now you said you got um you were originally picked up by the SIG Academy and shot mm-hmm. the P320. Were you on the gray shirt team then? Yeah, yeah. So I was shooting for the SIG Academy from the onset. They sort of were looking for another junior shooter to sort of phase in at the time that I was first getting involved. So I lucked out on that. And so I was with the Academy. They pretty much just sponsored me like, hey, like we were just going to basically we have this. The deal is essentially like we have like this money to spend on a sponsorship. So like you're the guy for now. So just get as good as you can. And around the time they started firing up the SIG factory team through Grey Guns, I was lucky enough to get involved with that, too. So that ran again like 20 end of 2014 into 2016 before that got uh, nipped. And then I, I went back shooting for the Academy for a little while. Yeah, because you, Tim Heron, was on that team and a whole bunch of other people. There, there was like 30 people on it for a while, yeah. Young Lee was on it. Uh, AJ Stewart was on it. There were some pretty decent level shooters on there. Yeah. And you all pimping out that 320 until the military bought it. Yep. I mean, like, that was short-lived and stuff, but you, you can't really deny, like, there was a a, a sharp note of, of uh, you know, increase in the, in the notoriety and reputation of that gun, like, before versus after. Uh, of course, you know, the army picking it up was like, it's, it's going to be a, a gold mine forever now, like for probably the next 20 years or whatever, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone's going to want their M18, M17s and. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do have the P320 X5 Legion Max edition. Maybe we'll get a Mason Lane edition soon. Yeah, probably not. That's okay. That's okay. We'll tell Bruce to make <laughs> it. Okay. <laughs> yeah gray guns is coming out with something that'll be just as cool if not cooler for for all kinds of divisions so don't worry about it there we go now how did you, you like i keep talking that you shot you shoot production predominantly mm-hmm. and you had nationals um what mother's day weekend in may do you yep. i think i don't think that you really liked having nationals that early especially since you live in the frozen tundra <laughs> Yeah. Was it my public commentary or my general demeanor that led on with that? I mean, uh, I yeah. think everybody doesn't like, I still don't think anybody liked that except the people in like Arizona and Florida. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm predominantly a production shooter historically, just because when I got involved, that was where the heat was. No matter where you went in the country, there was tons of people on a really high level that wanted to, to be competing in production. And I've always been the type where I'm not afraid to go shoot and win or lose any match that I'm going to go to. So that was always what I wanted to do. I wanted to get as shoot against the best shooters I could and try to get as good as I could. Uh, so I did that for a long time for that reason. Uh, that's sort of starting to not be the case anymore, uh, as evidenced by all the, all the gear changes, the lack of participation immediately after nationals, putting the nationals at the beginning of the year. All those things, I mean, you, you can you could argue that it's strategic to sh- try to diminish uh, participation. And in my opinion, the strategy is, you know, these divisions aren't really very sexy to watch. So we're just going to sort of make them as stupid as possible so nobody shoots them anymore which they're doing a great job of that if that's what they're trying to do. But production is kind of going the way of the dodo. I mean, I'll continue to be involved with it. My ego is tied up in it this in a way where I'm not going to be able to stop shooting production until I win a title in it. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, even if that means there's because there's 15 people shooting it, I'm still going to do it. So, but yeah. once I won a title in production, I probably won't shoot it anymore, frankly. Yeah. Well, 
I I predict in the next two to three years. I mean, I think they'll just axe it all together, unfortunately. But I don't necessarily foresee that. I don't really think they have the, the gumption to, to ditch divisions where they need to be ditched. But I'd love to see it just get fixed instead. But well, speaking of getting fixed, what would your be? What's your recommendations to fix production then? Uh, it would be good enough to just put a hiatus on the changes, right? Like right mm-hmm. now, it's not so far gone that it can't be fixed. Obviously, like the the brass weights and crap, like that needs to go. Needless mm-hmm. to say, like all the really goofy stuff, the flashlights and all that have to go. But short of that, like the the core of the division, right, is is minor ten rounds ostensibly a gun that you can buy out of a box and essentially go shoot a match with. So as long as that's still the case within a standard deviation of like a couple hundred bucks, right? Like that's, to me, that's, that's the core of of what it is. Ideally, I'd like to see it get moved to like back when it was in like 2016 or so when they changed it from, you know, it has to be completely factory on the outside plus or minus four ounces on the, on the factory weight. You can change springs and shit like that, but that's it. Right. Like that would be the most reasonable where, you know, you have to shoot essentially a factory gun. You can still do some stuff to, you know, to kind of like change out parts like as necessary just to fit your hands or whatever. But for the most part, like it's got to be a factory gun. Like to me, that's where that should be calibrated. But at this point, that's so far gone. I, I, I foresee it would take a really hard reset to get there. You know, a lot of people want to take it in more extreme directions even than that, like to sort of inc- mess around with the uh, the capacity and stuff like that. I think if that's how it had been at the time when they came out with the division, when they invented that division, they were thinking like due to gun laws that were coming out nationally, they thought that it was going to be, you know, 10 on everything. That's why they rolled out limited 10 Revo single stack and production all at the same time. And at the time that made perfect sense. But now that it's, you know, gotten to be the way it is, I, I feel it should stay there. Uh, if for no other reason than being, being married to 10 rounds at a time, like that actually opens up a really interesting challenge that you don't really get in any other division that is really meaningfully attended in any way yeah and there's i know a lot of people locally around me who still love you know production that's their it's their bread and butter until they mess with it too much i know there's some people talking they want 15 round production like ipsic and mm-hmm. i don't know i kind of kind of tempted I, to myself a production gun actually and shoot production every once in a while yeah i i feel that wanting to align with ipsc is a, as good a reason as any to do anything because it's like in like the third freaking line of the uspsa bylaws that were intended to, to prepare and send people to compete in international competitions and that's you know a part of the mission that's pretty pretty much totally foregone by the current administration but that's neither here nor there mm-hmm. now you came in third to at uh 2021 low cap correct uh yeah yep yep now i i i watched a little bit of the live stream and played a little along with practice score but i didn't really truly pay attention just because that's three it's 23 stages of shooting three days and it's a long time to be practice score competitor updating (laughs) yeah no i could see that i probably wouldn't have watched that closely if i wasn't competing myself (laughs) right well everyone was I don't know why everyone was bothering me about it, but everyone was like, are you looking at the scores? I'm like, is it day one still? Then no. It may be on right. day three. Yeah. I wasn't even looking at the scores on day one. Yeah. I would. How did you feel the match went for you? It was all right. I mean, I 
like between for me right now like what's separating me from winning any match i go shoot any nationals i go shoot is what's between the ears right here right mm -hmm. like that's i have the skills that i've demonstrated time and again the skills are there that i can be in the mix or or you know superior to literally anyone i'm going to go shoot against anywhere the problem is sealing the deal and you know staying true to myself and staying true to a system to shoot the same way on day three that i do through days one and two right mm -hmm. so if, if i can make that happen you know, everybody watch out. Like it's, it's game over. Like I've, you know, it's, it sounds cocky to say, and it's, you have to sort of believe that yourself as a competitor that, that you can beat anyone you're going to go shoot against. But that's, that's how it be. Mm -hmm. uh, realistically, it's like, I, the only thing that separated me from those other guys, or at least being a hell of a lot closer was not shooting like a dumbass on day three, me and JJ both for the most part cracked under pressure in those first few stages in the third day. And that's why the score ended up the way it did. Mm-hmm. But you, you, after those crack, like you cracked, say you cracked under the pressure on those early stages on day three, did you just not care at that point and just did whatever you wanted or did you still try to go for the match? No. So in a, in a traditional sense, right. Not caring would have been an okay way forward. Like if, mm -hmm. if I was going to say, all right, well, whatever, I, I screwed that up, but I'm just going to press forward with my normal strategy. Mm -hmm. That would have been great. Right. But at that point, the damage was done. So those first two stages I blew out real hard with penalties. Right. And you can't get away with throat racking up penalties when other people aren't. And if you watch the way the match that Nils put up, he just watched me and JJ spin our tires and he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Total ice man. And he walked out on top. Right. And he deserved that win 100% for that exact reason. The key for me is understanding that I am plenty fast enough, plenty good enough at shooting to hang with, with anyone that's, that's going to show up to a nationals anymore. And I have to just stay true to that and just follow my own process and not worrying about the dumb stuff that other people are doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause when you get sucked into thinking that it's a stage win race, that's when you're going to start doing stupid shit. That's going to blow you out of the match. Right. Now you, you, you won the one hand, the, the weak hands, no, the strong hand stage. Cause I remember you posted on Instagram saying that Kay would have kicked your ass if you didn't win that. stage. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was on day two. Uh, on day two, there was a, there was a stage where there was some really fast paced freestyle and strong hand shooting. And I, I beat that stage up like it owed me money. I mean, if I don't if I don't win every every freestyle uh, strong hand only stage I shoot from here on out, I mean, I, don't, I might as well just go home because it's I spend more time doing that than almost anyone I'm going to compete against. You know, short mm -hmm. of people with permanently only one hand. You know, yeah. so well, especially with your, I remember everyone. I don't know, maybe a year ago, I looked back at your. Uh, so that, that was 2019 where you were one-handed correct yep yeah i shot both nationals that way yeah and you still were slaughtering people with one hand it was stupid it was the dumbest thing i've ever done but it was i'm, I'm not i don't regret doing it at all i learned a ton from doing that and not just about one-handed shooting but just about competing in general when you spend so much time standing there wishing you could shoot faster you tend to notice a lot more opportunities that you didn't take advantage of <laughs> there you go now, by the time Nationals rolled around, you're kind of able to use your second hand a little bit more than you used to. Right? Well, yeah. So I, I, I jacked my hand, like, I want to say four weeks before the high cap Nationals. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to use it, like, on, on the first Nationals out in Utah, it was in, like, September or something. I was able to use, like, the one or two fingers I had to sort of grab a mag and, like, sort of finagle it into the gun. Mm -hmm. So I was able to do just the shooting aspect one-handed. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at low caps, I was in just a splint. So I was able to like splint it up just so I didn't jack it around when I was actually doing the shooting. And then I just ditched the thing when, it, when I wasn't shooting because it was hot as bejesus. <laughs> so same thing. I was able to reload normally and then just shoot with one hand. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, the sh- the shooting part is the part that's important, as you can probably imagine. So mm-hmm. it still wasn't awesome by any means. <laughs> but still, putting that kind of percentile up, even one-handed, is not a lot, not people not a lot of people can do that. Yeah, it's. It, it, I would definitely. I I see people occasionally, right? Like, of course, ever since I did that, every time someone jacks up a hand or whatever, you know, breaks a finger or what have you, I get tagged in like half a dozen posts, like, "Oh, look what I'm doing!" You know, I'm shooting with one hand, and I'm like, "Hey, I'm sorry, but you know, you're doing the right thing. You're gonna learn a lot from this, and you're never gonna take this time to do that much training with one hand unless you do that. So take advantage of it while you have the opportunity." Right. You'll uh, you'll learn the whole thing of uh, one-handedness. Yep. <sighs> Now, do you have any current goals besides taking a national title home again? I mean, like in shooting specifically? Yes. I mean, not, not really. I mean, like the one that's on the horizon right now is win carry objects nationals, of course. You're, you're going cool. to dethrone the goat? I'm going to try. I'm going to try like hell. I can see you doing yeah, it. That's, so that's the main thing, right, is, is after after May nationals – you know, the next, the next thing to do is to just turn to the next match. Like I knew going into, into production nationals, like you're not going to be as hot as you can be with a match. That's just time with like maybe a month and a half of training prior to it, at least where I live. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of went into that with basically no expectations. Like, let's just go do whatever we can. And, uh, you know, I, I pretty much got a, Hey, let's just see what happens kind of result. So naturally the next thing to focus on after that is carry optics. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the match to shoot. I mean, there's going to be literally like two and a half full super squads worth of actual contenders at that match. So that's that's the title. That's that's going to be the most prestigious title that anyone can win since 2015 in production. So mm-hmm. that's logically where I want to go and try to win. Uh, in addition to that, of course, you know, defending the limited title will be cool. But I, I intend to train for that the same way I did last year, which is, you know, doubles every time i go out and other than that i'm not gonna jack up my joints just to make it happen i'll do dry fire with iron sights occasionally so that i stay in touch with them mm-hmm. but uh that's that's pretty much it interesting yeah because you just pretty much just swapped you just put the upper on that gun didn't you the 40 upper on your yeah regular... yeah i i threw uh the, the factory magwell on it and switched the new top end on it and then that that was that mm-hmm. so that, that was all i was really interested in, in doing i i shot that match in limited you know I won't say for fun because I didn't care. It's not like I didn't care, but it was, I didn't train for that nearly the same way different production. And this year will be the same way. Carry optics would be the focus and I'll shoot limited just to see what happens. It wouldn't be right for me to, to shoot it just once and walk away. Right. Like I got to go now shoot against the guys that I'm actually shooting against in the match and see what happens. Yeah. And you'll shoot on the super squad this year, this time, won't you? Right. So yeah, you know, say what you will about pressure of being on it versus not, but now I'm going to, I'll go take the opportunity and do it properly. Mm-hmm. I meanwhile you give everyone last year their shot on the super squad and then now you get to bump somebody off essentially and get out then. <laughs> that's, that's a good way to think about it actually yeah yeah and uh I mean whatever they can bitch and moan that you weren't on the super squad I mean it's just match logistics too I mean it's like it's like yeah we got these guys who've already you know we already put here and then did you sign up later I mean, or something no, I hadn't shot limited since 2018, and I didn't finish in like anywhere near the top 10s. So that's why I wasn't on it. Right. And you know that that it used to be the super squad was drafted by basically 
the top, like the president or whatever executive cabinet they decided would pretty much just hand select the super squad. Like, yeah, all these guys right here are, are viable candidates to win the match. And they just throw those guys on the squad and they've moved it to being basically order of finish, like one through 10 plus or minus like four or five guys based on whoever can go. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's no skin off the ass of anyone who's like, you know, 11th or 12th. Like those are obviously extremely talented shooters, but those guys are realistically not contenders for the match the same way JJ is just because he didn't shoot the match last year. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, does that make sense? Oh yeah. It makes sense. So, so some of that, that sort of uh, executive oversight has been lost. So, you know, I'm not saying that's why I wasn't on it, but I, that, that's that's more or less why I wasn't on it. Like in in retrospect, of course, I'm sure they would have wa- watched the percentage I put up of production and been like, "Oh, maybe we should rethink this a little bit." But it's neither here nor there. It really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, did, how how did you like um, 2020 Nationals for production and carry optics? Did you think that pairing those two were together was okay, or would have you changed something if you were in charge? Uh. I don't know. I mean, I, I think what the divisions they put together for the most part, like I think the, the, essentially what you're getting at is you want to pair divisions that are similar in capability. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's pretty much fine. Obviously like you're going to stretch the shots out to test carry optics in a way that's probably going to be mo- moderately unfair for production. But the fact that those are both minor power factor divisions at least makes it close. Like I'm curious to see what it's going to be like shooting carry optics and PCC at the same match this year. Like that's, two drastically different capabilities on guns with both being minor, but one being a damn rifle and the other not, I mean, either the guys in PCC are going to be not challenged in any way, or the guys in CO very much will be. So, uh, I mean, I didn't really think much of it. I thought the match last year for production and and limited was pretty good. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I didn't, I didn't really think too much of it. Gotcha. Now, what, uh, what are your current goals for your training business? Gonna grow it as much as I can. I mean, the primer situation has everyone really rethinking spending any primers they have. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, trying to stay as busy as I can without realistically. Uh, around here, I teach tons of private lessons where, like, I'll take on folks and I'll just do an hourly rate and teach like up to four people at a time. Uh, but there's there's no, you know, you can't make a living doing that. Like, there's just not enough people that are available all the time to really make it happen. Mm-hmm. So, connecting to more and more people around the country and even internationally that want to host classes that can rack up, you know, 12 people at a time is really, this is the move. Like I want, at this point, I'm enthusiastic about it and I'm learning a lot doing it. So I want to continue to do it for as long as I can. I'm sure at some point I'll get sick of it, but like right now I, I like doing it a lot. So I want to do it as much as I can. Mm-hmm. That's good. Now I, I like, I've been talking with more than about five guys now in my state of Michigan. We're like, we want Mason out. But there's always the comma, if there's ammo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that's that's always everything that comes after the butt, right? That's the mm-hmm. real story. Yeah. So, or it's or it's when we have ammo, then we will get Mason out here. Yes. Now that's what I've experienced as well. Is I've had I think either four or five different classes get canceled or just not assimilated just due to the fact that people don't have primers right now. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I mean, if if I was if I was in the position of some of the people I talked to like in recent days, like I would be doing the same thing. I'd be batting down the hatches as well. Like I talked to guys who are like, Oh yeah, I have like 2000 rounds. I'm like, that's it. Like, I don't know where I'm going to get any more. I'm like, damn, I wouldn't be taking classes if I was you either then. Yeah. Well, and I guess it's better not to even get the classes assimilated if they know they don't have the ammo instead of being like the crunch. Yeah, I know. So I get it. And I'm, I'm trying to do as much as I can as the primer situation improves slowly. 
uh, I'm sure it'll get better and better. But in the meantime, it's just it's a tough break just because it's obviously folks are not trying to t- take training and spend, you know, people have the money to spend, but not the ammo. So it's mm-hmm. it kind of is what it is. If you're interested in setting up a class with me, you know, such, contact me on Facebook or Instagram or whatever or email me at masonlane.lsat at Gmail. And we can make it happen easy, especially if you have, you know, 10 or 12 people going on. So mm-hmm. I'll do as much as I can. I try to stay as busy as I can. So don't think that I'm too busy to get a hold of. Uh, if you think you have enough people to make it happen, contact me. Mm-hmm. And which is a nice part is actually having like the people saying like, yes, before you uh, even post the class is kind of nice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, um, so talking a little bit about training, what is your training schedule like nowadays? Uh. So I've said this like on every podcast I've ever been on, but I, I live by one really big philosophical point, And that's that I only train on an as I feel like basis. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'll only bother doing training if I'm really juiced to do it. And if I really have time and energy to do it and I can focus on it properly. So the good part for me is, you know, I'm relatively motivated and I, I love doing training and I, and I like that it allows me to do better at matches. So I pretty much always want to do it. It's just a matter of making time so that I can be fresh enough to actually learn something when I do it. So uh, through the summer during a train up cycle, I'll pretty much any day I can make time to do shooting easily. I will do it. So that usually results in like three, sometimes four days a week, live fire, not a lot of rounds up to like 200 rounds out of whack. And so Dry fire, you know, in the summer, it's a little less just for the fact that I have more time to teach. And when I'm teaching, I can get a lot of sort of the basic repetitions done that are involved with maintenance. And of course, when I'm doing actual training up for my own benefit, then I'm not always diligent about doing dry fire on those days. But through the winter, I'll do dry fire literally every single day. Mm -hmm. Uh, On average, I would say I probably average six days a week with a gun in my hand in some capacity. And for the most part, I won't do less than like, you know, 20 minutes at a whack. Uh, as far as like, like round count, just to sort of color the numbers on how much live fire I'm doing, I probably, I think I shot, uh, like 30,000 rounds last year, maybe, maybe 25. This year's going to be a little less just because the ammo situation is a little worse, but so I'm not shooting a pile of ammo. Uh, and I'm, I'm not doing a pile of live fire. It's, it's mainly about, you know, I, I feel strongly that frequency is way better than volume, mm-hmm. uh, for, for quality purposes. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are actually finally learning that this year and last year. Is that if well, I think know, enough people are seeing it. <laughs> yeah. The half well, and sometimes it's the ammo crunch, and they're like, "Oh, okay, I got my ten thousand primers for the year, and that's about it." And I, I think too, like the culture has changed to the point where, like in in the heyday of like two thousand five to like you know twenty twelve or whatever, the only guys that were dominant domestically were, were AMU guys. Right. Yeah. Where like the strategy there is bring a bucket of ammo to work every single day and shoot until it's gone. And it's mm-hmm. like it's, you know, certainly there's some some amazing world level competitors that come out of that strategy. But there's a lot that don't also. And people are realizing now that you don't have to spend a fortune to get really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like uh, Jay Beal, he heart, you know, he dry fires very re- regularly, but it's like, yeah, maybe I saw 10 that dude rounds. Day. Yeah, he shot like 20 rounds. I'm like, shit. All right. Like making me feel dumb mm-hmm. he's jay's a buddy of mine but god i wish i had uh his brain to fit you know for real yeah no, i know i'd love to go up and train with that guy i don't live too far from him i live like less than like five hours away from him and I've, I've, i'd love to make the opportunity to go up and shoot with him i just haven't gotten around to it mm-hmm. 
There you go. Or bring him down to the SIG, get him to come down to the SIG Academy. There you go. Could do that. Get him a little mini vacay from the goats. <laughs> <laughs> nah, Jay's a cool dude. Um, now, do you, how do you prepare for mat, like major matches? Are you doing anything different with yourself or? Sure. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, right. <clears throat> uh, I think about my skill level in terms of a whole season. So every year in the spring, I'll outline goals for the year. And those start with high-level items like winning X matches. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, break down much more specifically there. It's all the way down to the most minute skills improvements that I could pretty much possibly think of that I want to make in order to facilitate the larger goals. That's a pretty you know, reasonable, irrefutable strategy as far as that goes. But what I'm getting at there is, is I'm training pretty much the same way. I'm training to improve my skill level all year long, pretty much the same way. And the only thing that's going to change about my training and, and with respect to proximity to matches is the specific evaluation that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So as I'm coming into matches, right, I'm less concerned about like trying to be faster, trying to get better and more concerned about consistency, like hitting seal the first time you shoot at it, shooting really good percentages of points, like with respect to what, you know, the perceived factor of the stages is going to be, et cetera. So not that much changes as far as that goes about the shit, the tap gets shut off on like, you know, just beat your face and like try to get better mode about two or three weeks before a match. <laughs> and it sort of goes into consistency mode, uh, which I think is, you know, a strategy that more or less most top shooters would agree on. Uh, and other than that, the, the training works the same way year round. Like I start when I start, I dry fire all winter long. I start shooting when the weather gets decent, which is usually around like the beginning to the middle of April in my area. And I'll only stop shooting live fire or training aggressively, basically when it gets too cold to really do it. So around like, you know, the beginning of December or so, and then I'll take an off season and the whole thing starts over again. Mm -hmm. Now for your off season, do you give yourself like a couple of weeks or is it more like a month or month and a half? It, it depends on the year. Like, I, I mean, Last year in 2020, I didn't start doing real training until May because it was like it was obvious in the beginning of the year. None of the matches. I didn't shoot a single match until August. So I didn't do any training. I took like a proper like summer vacation like I was a kid again. Like we went like, you know, kayaking and like mudding and stuff like it was really cool. So, I mean, the offseason in that case that lasted, you know, with interspersed dry fire as I felt like it, like <laughs> almost six months. Uh, so usually it's not that much like i said i usually really like shooting and uh so i'll pretty much do it whenever i get a chance to it's only be a couple weeks at a time mm -hmm. now now how beneficial is it to literally have your training partner be like with you all the time it can be very beneficial uh so I, of course what, what alex is alluding to right is i i'm i live of course with my fiance who's also my training partner i got her into shooting like three years ago or so now mm-hmm and so there's essentially no training that I do that she's not there for unless I happen to be just teaching someone else and she's not around. Uh, so in the sense of her like being in my ear, like, hey, you're not doing this thing you said you were going to do. Hey, are you visualizing the stage? Hey, are you doing this there, that thing the other correct way? Uh, it's really good, right? Because she holds me accountable in a way that, that no one else can. Uh, just, just due to you know, consistency. As far as being accountable just to like a stranger in the room, like the other week we had Rob of Afina came up before Area 7 and like just him being on the range, I'm like, oh shit, like I actually feel the pressure of like wanting to do well now because there's someone else here who like is going to know what he's looking at, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that value, it made me realize in the moment that that value is, is lost with her just because we, we see each other so much and we're not 
we're comfortable with shooting around each other. So it's not like dragging a new person to the range gets that same benefit. But for the most part, it's really, really helpful, especially because, you know, she's relatively bright and she watches me teach most of my lessons. So she knows the sorts of stuff I'm saying to other people and holds me pretty accountable when I'm not doing it myself. Mm -hmm. Now, would you recommend more shooters finding a training partner? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something most folks know they need to do, but it's really just a matter of viable candidates in your area, I think, for most people, at least based on the folks I've talked to. <laughs> like, it's it's only worth, like, training with someone if they're going to provide a perspective that you can't get yourself, right? So the traditional model would be try to find someone who's, like, at least as good as you or maybe even a little better than you and just train with them because they're going to, by watching them and listening to the stuff they say, you're going to learn stuff. It would also be good to have that person be not just good, but, you know, relatively smart and analytical and knowing what it is they're doing and why. Uh, and in that case, you know, you can find someone who's not even nearly as good as you are, but is going to be good about bouncing ideas off of. So, yeah, folks that are either, you know, really good and want to train or clever and want to train are really hard to come by for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, based on most of the folks I've talked to. So, yeah. Uh, it's something I definitely recommend, especially if you can, you know, get someone who's going to be there consistently. I always tell people, especially when they're getting into doing lessons with me, like if you're going to have someone that you're going to train with all the time or someone you live with, like if I have like an uncle nephew kind of situation or whatever, mm -hmm. I always say, bring your buddy, dude. Like we can save you money and you're going to like be able to bounce ideas off of each other and remember the shit I say way better than you're going to be able to on your own. Mm -hmm. Now, would you, I, would you recommend like a B class or maybe a low A getting like having a GM or an M training partner? Well, yeah. Uh, it, for in what sense? Well, well, because like, you know, the higher levels of discrepancy, well, even say, you know, like you have a C class or a D class shooter, you know, who their training partner is than like an M or a GM. Yeah. So, I mean, like <laughs> anecdotally, right. Like here's a, here's a scenario that, that sort of paints that, that issue is, IDPA as an institution, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's the average skill level of people that go and shoot that sport Be for a variety of reasons, like the way the scoring works, but also because there's just not that much talent in that sport. Like for the most part, you go to the matches around my way and it's like, it's like a social event where a match kind of breaks out on the side. And like, that's <laughs> right. not to take anything away from, you know, those guys or whatever, but the getting better at shooting aspect isn't the priority, obviously. Mm -hmm. So you know, you get a, a C class and a D class guy and they're training together, it's going to more or less be like the blind leading the blind, right? Mm -hmm. You have to find someone who's at least good enough or at least, in, in, you know, smart enough to source new information and find out what it is they're looking for. And obviously if that's a one-sided situation, that's probably not going to work out for very long because the person that's not getting anything out of it isn't going to keep coming back. <laughs> right. Or besides the laughs, they'll get the laughs for sure. <laughs> that's only so entertaining for so long though. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That is true. That's an interesting idea. Well, I think we're at the part of the show where I'm going to introduce the listener questions. Sure um, thing. I'll cover that. Um, we've got one that asked, what was your mindset at area seven? Because in his guy's words, you were so damn close to beating max. Uh, I mean, I, I went in with the mindset of, I'm just going to go shoot these stages, right? Like I know historically that that match is at my home club where I'm only like, we talked in the pre-show a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm only, I'm like less than 20 minutes away from that club. So that sounds like, Hey, Oh, you get to go shoot like on your home territory. Like that must be a huge leg up. And historically that's not been the case for me at all. Like all the major matches that run out of there, I've historically sucked pretty badly because I'm treating it like it's old home day and not like it's a competition. Right. 
So a huge part of my focus was when I was out there, like, you know, doing staff stuff before the match, like painting targets, like helping set up stages and shit like that. I specifically didn't let myself go and walk the stages or like, you know, buy into what the strategies were going to be when I was out there just looking at one or two stages at a time. I only went out and watched stages the day I said I was going to. So that way I could try to treat it as much like a major match as possible. And as far as specific respect to the scoring, right, I was just trying to stay, stay true to my process. I took a Ben class like three weeks ago or so, maybe four. And uh, I changed some stuff with my grip. He was he beat, beat the bags out of me as far as like, you know, trying to avoid risk and changing up aiming schemes on partials and stuff like that. So minor actual like, you know, technique changes that got implemented were good. But as far as the scoring and the overall mindset was like, I'm just going to go like, I know I'm good enough to do to at least get close to max. And all I really need to do is get close to him and try to put the pressure on him at nationals. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he's the reigning champ is going to be under a lot more pressure than I am or the other 15 guys are that are trying to beat him at the match. So as long as I can get really close to him and remind him that he's not the only one that's decent in carry optics, like that's the mission. Like it really winning the match is sort of peripheral at that point. Yeah, and you're kind of using it as setting the tone for uh, October, correct? It's October. Yeah, 100. Like that's that that was the goal. Is like, hey, like remind this dude that he's not the only guy that's good at this. Like he might be the guy for now, but you know he's not the only one. Mm -hmm. And I think he kind of knows that at this point. Is that, oh shit, I'm not getting any younger, and these young guys are getting damn good. Yeah, nothing for nothing, right? Like he's an, an amazingly talented shooter. But he's got to appreciate that whoever walks away the winner of this Nationals, is, it's like I said, it will be the most prestigious national title that anyone has won since 2015. And if it's him, then damn, man, congratulations to him. But there's a lot of people that are gunning for it, for sure. Mm -hmm. That is for sure. Um, the next question from a listener. Oh, this one's a good one. Why didn't you have a flashlight for low cap Nats? You, and I think he refers to another podcast. You said that everyone in the Super Squad would have a flashlight. Because I like girls. Because <laughs> you like girls. That's a good answer. <laughs> I, that was definitely a miscalibration. I, I definitely, I thought way more people were going to have them. I mean, when that first got rolled out, like, like there was like a handful of, of, of other top level shooters that were like, oh yeah, here's, here's my new light sponsor and shit. Right. And I'm like, mm -hmm. all right, I guess that's the thing now. But I'm shooting a, what's already a 43 ounce gun. I don't really feel compelled to strap any more weight to it in retrospect. Mm -hmm. So Fat apology for everyone that uh, went out and bought a flashlight at my recommendation. <laughs> yeah, well, did so I'm assuming no one on the Super Squad had one, correct? Literally nobody, yeah. Do you think that was more for a gimmick for, like, the lower class shooters to put the flashlight on their guns, or? Well, in terms of the strategy of the org? Mm-hmm. I'm certain that they actually thought that people would show up and shoot the sport that never had before just because all of a sudden they could have a light on their gun. And I'm certain they did not anticipate the fact that people would go out and build brass slugs and stick them on their gun and put a pen light in it so they can apply with the rules. I'm certain they did not anticipate that or they would have created a flashlight list, which is still yet to be done, by the way, mm -hmm. which needs to happen because it's a complete joke that someone could show up with a literal frame light on their gun and shoot it in production. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I, I but I bet nobody shot production at appendix though. Uh, I think I think that dude in Florida, the the pepperoni guy, is the only one that does that. Oh yeah, <laughs> Les Kiss Martoni. Yes, that's the guy. Yeah, he he's pretty good, but you know I, I don't. He's that's it's it's not really what you're trying to do when you're trying to win the match, right? Is like you're trying to to shoot like to win, not just with the gear. Yeah, he I think he finally switched to carry optics. 
but he he just has fun doing it for uh, shooting the appendix stuff. But he, he's remarkably good at it for sure. Mm-hmm. What is the next one? Oh, this one is a question I like. Um, it's and I think it's about the new concept you rolled out at the summit, or at least made public at the summit. It was levels of risk. Yeah. Because um, he's asking, when do you decide to shoot something on the move or just get to that position as fast as possible and shoot once you're there? So the question is specifically about shooting on the move. As that relates to the layers concept, shooting on the move is considered a layer, right? So mm-hmm. whether or not you really conceive of it as like, oh, I, if you have to think about the fact that, oh, I'm going to take these moving, that probably constitutes a layer. If you're just kind of like rolling your weight out of a spot just because it's natural to do so, then maybe not. But that's kind of peripheral to the actual question, right? Whether or not you're going to shoot something on the move is decided on whether or not it's going to benefit you. So like, as I always tell my students, if you're going to shoot slower and move slower compared to just getting there and shooting, then don't do it. Right. Like people get attached to the idea of doing shooting on the move just because they know in an anecdotal sense, shooting on the move is faster. So they'll do it even if it means they're going to shoot worse points in a worse time, just because they feel that that's something that they're, this is that this idea that they're anchored to. Mm -hmm. Right. So my recommendation for people is never do the shooting on the move thing. If it's going to be a guaranteed exchange for points in favor of time, especially shooting minor. Right. So Mm -hmm. that means you're only going to do it if getting the points is a sure thing, which, you know, depending on your skill level means it's pretty much only going to be on really easy targets, or if you're really good at it, maybe it's a little bit farther, but that means for most people in most situations, shooting on the move is not worth it because most people are not that good at it, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I liked your concept of the layer. Did you call them the layers of difficulty? Yeah. Yeah. We can elaborate on that if you want. Go right ahead. So basically the concept is, right, any any aspect of a stage design or any aspect of a plan that you're going to take on a stage is considered a layer, a layer of difficulty, as it were. So in your plan, you're going to try to seek to reduce as many layers as possible to the point where you're reducing risk, right? Because the more layers you stack on top of each other, the, the more risk you're going to accrue. So to be specific, uh, Shooting on the move, shooting a target on the move would be considered a layer. Shooting a a, a par- target, you know, partialing up on a target with black or white would be considered a layer. Distance to a target, uh, you know, as relevant, you know, if it's perceived as far by you in your subjective sense, that's a layer. A target moving, fast activation sequence, any of those individual elements of a challenge that are going to, you know, be intimidating or cause a problem for you in some way, those are all considered layers. So the basic policy is don't stack more than two layers at a time, right? So never take a far partial target on the move, right? If there's another way to skin that cat, right? Never shoot a fast activator sequence with a no shoot on it, you know, when you're tight on rounds, if you can avoid it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's certainly situations where match directors put you in where you don't have a choice. It's just like, oh yeah, I've got to shoot basically this like, you know, 25 meter tuxedo on a lean from this spot is the only place you can see it. It's like, well, in that case, you pretty much just got to do it. But in terms of strategy and trying to reduce risk as much as possible, the policy is try to reduce as many layers as possible. And of course, you can stack some to kind of take on strategic risk and make a, a gain on, on score. But you have to be willing to reconcile the risks for that. And realistically, where most people are, are you know, the majority of shooters are like low A class or less. The policy is don't don't take on more than two layers at a time. Mm-hmm. Now, do you follow that rule and only take two layers or is your layer layers bumped so, up? 
on the higher le- on the higher levels of the sport, right? Guys that are like master M class or higher, mm-hmm. uh, it gets you can. It's worth you know subdividing. So the system, as it were, is really only appropriate for folks that don't have a gut instinct for what options are are not good on a stage, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the core concept is like, if you don't have the match experience, just intuitively look at a challenge and be like, is this a good idea or not? That's how you, that's what the system is for. You can just say like, based on my gut, is that target far? Is it partial in a way that's threatening? Okay. There's two, don't do anything else stupid on it. Right. Uh, for guys like on my level or, you know, guys on like a master class level, it's not really as relevant because you mm-hmm. can subdivide all those layers so many different ways that it like, it becomes a system of decimals. That's more complicated than just tr- trusting your gut. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, if you ask almost anyone else, right, they'll just say, oh, yeah, if, if like trust your gut, does it seem like a good idea or does it not? And that and that decision is informed by like past, you know, outcomes and statistics. So if you have the experience to know, you don't need to like do some arithmetic to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I bet like on most of those stages, well, I, what was it? Florida Open or Florida State where you uh, played very risky with the steel plates? Yeah, that was it. Was the state so that that's, that's the story I've told before, right? On um, there was a stage where it was nine plates that were ranged from like fifteen to to nine meters away, as you kind of shot your way into this array. And I was shooting production, so I only have two extra rounds. They're like sort of medium far steel, and you know I was shooting on the move. So there's three layers, right? So the 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 core concept is you don't need the, the layers and the mathematics to sort of inform your decision if you're good if you're maybe if you're not so good you don't have the experience maybe you do but the core concept is you need to be doing a detailed in-depth risk analysis on every element of the stage right like you shouldn't just look at the whole stage like oh yeah it's a 32 round course like you know 13 of the paper are less than 10 meters but then the other two are like you know 25 meters away with tuxedos on them like you're not just going to address the whole thing at one speed right mm-hmm. So you have to do, it's usually not that clear cut either, right? So you have to do an in-depth risk analysis on every aspect of the stage to see whether or not it's a good idea. And the layer is an easy way to sort of streamline that to make sure you're doing an appropriate job of, uh, you know, doing that risk assessment. Yeah, risk assessment, you got to manage your risks. I mean, some because you know there's going to be the guy who goes balls to the wall and doesn't think about that and has the, it's usually the really low level guys who are like the super gimmicky stage plan and, just yeah. smack and burn yeah yeah no it's it's i've found that there's a definitely a strong correlation between like uh you know stage plan diversity or stage plan uh you know novelty and uh you know inverse relationship to that in class because guys tend to you try to come up with like the most unique plan they can not necessarily the best one mm-hmm. for sure the, the part of what uh the sort of concept that I feel a lot of people get hung up on is, is the idea of sort of equating the effort with a success. Right. <laughs> so people will look at a stage where it's like, okay, I have like these couple five yard targets and like in the back of their head, like their reptile brain is saying, Hey, like those targets are easy. You should definitely push harder on them and try to pick up time. Right. And it's like, that's a stupid way to be thinking about it. You should be thinking about every target in terms of like how many points can I raw points can I easily pick up on this target compared to another one. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it that way, you know, if at least if you have a demeanor like mine, where sort of, you're, I, at least me, I'm pretty much, the speed is always pretty much going to be there. I'm always going to want to naturally outpace the shoot in my sight. So I have to focus on getting points where I can and not just pushing hard where I can, right? Right. Someone else yeah. who's wired differently may have the opposite issue. But for me, that's an easy way to think about it, where it's like, I'm trying to attach myself to getting easy raw points where it's possible and playing a safe where else is possible. So the layer system is good for someone that's wired that way. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think a little bit of how many I can't lose points, or you know, how many points can you lose at that point? You know, is your plan to give you go a little bit faster, maybe pick up a couple more Charlies at that point, and go a little bit for speed, but not can't get those deltas because deltas are scored mics in minor divisions essentially. Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. I mean, it's hey, it's, you 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 hit one, you got an extra hole in the paper. That's all you get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does doesn't help you very much, that's for sure. Now this this la- one of these questions is from your friend Gaston, and he asks why Sharon Tate. What? Why Sharon Tate? I don't know. I don't you think don't I understand have... the question. I don't. I don't either. Maybe you'll have to hit up Gaston and ask. I definitely should. I don't get it. Maybe that's maybe probably it's... some bizarre sexual reference that he's making. Probably. But then the Damn. last. Damn Gaston. <laughs> ben probably put him up to it. You never know. Probably. And then the last question from our listeners is when will the Grey Guns X540 upper hit the market? <clears throat> Soon, man. Uh, we're working on projects we uh, that uh, I, I guess I should I would have to, to ask that person a little bit more specifically. So the one that I shot at the last Nationals, if you if you get a hold of Grey Guns and ask them for one, you'll get one. You can get on the wait list and get one right now. So the gun that I shot last year, it was essentially it was a 4.7 inch factory barrel with one of the SIG gunsmith slides. So in the new FCU program, they're sending out like these beefed out, you know, slides with no lightning cuts at all. They have the functional cuts of the breech face and, and where the barrel goes and everything else is more or less stock standard. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's left at the discretion of the various custom shops, you know, what they want to cut off of it to make it look sexy and stuff. So the gun that I shot was built off of one of those. Uh, so for the most part, it, you know, aside from the mass distribution in the slide, it was a factory 4.7 inch 40 cal top end. That's not to say it's not nice. Uh, and it shoots a hell of a lot better than a factory 40 cal gun for the fact that it has retained mass. Uh, so if you like 320s, you would certainly like that gun. So you can get that now. If you get a hold of gray guns, you can get one of those. You can get on a wait list and buy one anytime. Uh, the gun that we have stuff coming out that's going to be better. And I will have prototypes, if not production runs, by the upcoming Nationals. Boom. Now, are you a green fiber or a red fiber kind of guy? I like green. When I was like 15, someone told me like, Hey, you know, like you can see, you know, human eyes pick up green better in low light and stuff. And when you get old, you're going to want green. I'm like, Oh, well I'll just switch now then. Mm-hmm. And that was that. Yeah. But then you switch to a red dot and then it's red. Yeah. But I don't really notice that either. Like yeah. it, honestly, it's one of those things where like I picked up like my 1911 the other day that I had from like way back when I first got involved with shooting and it has a red fiber on it. I picked it up and I drive hard like twice. And then I like I, I it's not like I noticed it or anything. Like if I pick up a gun that has a red fiber, I'm not going to notice. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's all personal preference, I guess. It it really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Dimensions of your sights are going to matter a lot more. Yeah. Do you go for a really thin, uh, well, a very narrow rear sight? Or- I, I like the. I don't know what the dimensions are. I like the setup on the factory, the factory setup on the X5s and X5 Legions. Okay. So if I were to approximate, I would bet that's probably like a, a, a 0.1 front and probably like like a 160 rear or something like that. Okay, so you it's, got some it's good slot on the there, inside for a front and like a, a sort of medium for a rear. Yeah. Because I know there are some people who like really, really tight you know, sight pictures and not a lot of light there. Uh, yeah. So part of the advantage of red dots, right. Is your entire 
window, the size of your window, which is like the size of an eye patch, right, mm -hmm. is the size of your, your rear sight. So mm -hmm. if you whip the gun over to a target and the thing's not perfectly centered in the window, you're not even going to notice it. You're just going to move either your wrist or hand to the point that if the dot is then on the spot you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So when you set your sights super incredibly ridiculously tight, you're taking what is already at the most a 0.200 dot window mm -hmm. and you're shrinking it down even more than that. Right. So the super uber ridiculously tight sights are not that helpful. And when it's such a small amount of light that you can't perceive the difference either way, that's just as bad as when you have like, you know, a freaking noodle between a set of football uprights, right? And you're trying to see the space on either side, right? <laughs> it's, it's something that's kind of medium to be able to tell what's going on. Mm -hmm. I, I like the setup on the regular factory X5 sites, you know, for the most part. I like the dimensions of those just fine. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Now, another question I have for you is what really got you into teaching and why do you still teach? Or what, or, and then what keeps you wanting to teach? I, well, I got into it for the, for the money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think that's what most people would tell you if they were honest mm -hmm. is when you run, run the numbers of like, you know, if you ever take a class, it's a reasonable to pay like 400 to 450 to $500 for a two day class. And then you multiply that by 12 in your head. You're like, Oh shit, I could make that much money at one time after, you know, then you strip off expenses like wow that's pretty attractive for something i already like doing anyway so mm -hmm. that's why i got into it because i had to do something i was in college and i needed to pick up money to do something and you know i'm good at shooting people like sort of like care what i have to say now a little bit so i'm going to start doing the teaching thing uh i'm staying in it well for money and also because of the fact that i'm learning a lot through doing it i honestly don't think i ever would have gotten much better than being like sort of a middle of the pack gm if i hadn't started teaching because being forced to teach, it forces you to not only intellectualize, but verbalize all of the lessons and ideas that you have in your head in a way that is streamlined in a way that people can actually understand. Right. Mm -hmm. So where you may have some sort of this abstract idea about the way something may work, it forces you to go through the effort of at the very least thinking through it and intellectualizing why things are the way they are. Right. Mm -hmm. At the very least, so that you can then at least have an idea what to say when someone asks you, hey, why are you doing this thing that way, right? And invariably, you're not going to have an answer for everything. Like when you first start teaching, it's going to happen all the time that you just have to be straight with people. They say, hey, why are you doing X, Y, and Z? And you're like, oh, damn, I, you know, I haven't really thought about that. I guess I'll think about it a little bit more and I'll shoot you a DM later on, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to want that to happen as infrequently as possible, ideally, right? Because you're going to look like a chump. Like people are going to think you don't know what you're doing. So it motivates you to do more and more academic research into why you're doing the things you're doing as opposed in a way really that doing just training on your own, at least for me, never would have been able to, mm -hmm. uh, it demands more on a more and deeper understanding of subject matter than just trying to get better out of yourself. Like if you talk to even top level shooters, there's top level shooters out there where you sort of listen to them talking like this guy's definitely good, but I don't really feel like he understands what it is he's actually doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that instinct is true in a lot of cases. Right. So you can be very, very good and not, really know a whole lot about what it is that's going on or not be very good at teaching. Like Ben always says jokingly, right? It pays to have about an 85 IQ in shooting if you want to be really good. And I, I don't, mm -hmm. that's definitely a joke, but he, he kind of means it also. Yeah, I see where he's getting at that. And there's some people who just cannot articulate what they are doing and why. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, that's, you know, it's not to like dig on that person and say they're dumb or whatever, right? But it's like, 
that person clearly isn't really cut out for teaching. And there's clearly like a level of understanding they don't have, or at least, I don't know, I guess maybe it's unfair. I've always been gifted like verbally in the sense that I haven't struggled to like, just like seamlessly write shit that makes sense. So I guess I'm probably like needlessly judgy for saying that they don't know it, but if they can't articulate it, I have a hard time believing that they understand it on the same level as someone that can does. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, um, when typically on a two day class, what's the low level of a uh, student? Like, do you have like super new competitive shooters or not even competitive shooters come to your classes? It depends on the region. So like I said, you know, some of the classes I set up, like the average person, like the median shooter will be like an A class. Mm-hmm. That's like, you know, that will be towards the upper level. Most of the, like the average person would be probably fall like perfectly dead center in the middle of a normal distribution. Because usually the person that sets up the class would be kind of like medium to upper level. That's why they care enough to bother setting up the class. And then they know a bunch of people that are all approximately their level or a little better and they'll fill out like the majority of the class and some other people drop in or whatever, right? Like it kind of varies on the class and it varies on the region. Like I've taught classes where, you know, there's literally not a single shooter that's like worse than a class. And I've shot, taught a lot of classes where there's not a single person who's even above B class. Right. So it's, it's not really gated at skill level in any way. I mean, most of the stuff I teach is like, it's the same core content. It's just the way that I deliver it and give feedback on it is going to be very different depending on skill level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, which is interesting. I just took a Tim Heron class and the skill levels, interestingly enough, were, it was one of those. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. had, we had a never had competed before shooter last year when I took, this is my second time I took a Tim class last year. I had never competed, but I have been into like behind the sport and sucked into it before that, like for about six months, I had like figured out, what was going on, what I wanted to shoot. So I wasn't a total slob when I showed up to the class. So I was okay. Sure. With it. But we had never competed before. The people who, how'd you get out of D class shooters in the class? <laughs> and they, they yeah. learned a ton. And like, you watch them and they're like, no slack on them. One of them was like, where are you, Mr. Dot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah, like, look at the red, right? Mm-hmm. And then we had yeah. the most of, I think the median of the class was B solid b level shooters and i think the top was a top or a couple a class guys i think in terms of like probably statistics and this would be just a guess but just based on how the math works out with how to get out of b class like you can get into it really easily and get out of it very difficultly Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people that are sort of class candidates right where they care enough to pay money and spend a weekend getting better where they're going to be like b class right so that's that's a lot of people are about that level but that i mean i like teaching everybody like honestly i'd way rather have someone who's d class but enthusiastic to learn than someone who's like as good as me but couldn't give a shit less what i have to say yeah well and then what well, you had a class ben was in a class last year i want to think yeah yeah he came out and filmed it yep I remember that. Yeah, it was awesome having him. I mean, you watch people do like the drills that you're teaching on like a, a ridiculously high level, like better than I can. I'm like, nobody look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at that guy. He yeah. Finally, he finally cut his hair, didn't he? Yeah, he, he looks respectable now. I think he's actually growing it back out probably. You know, it's, it gets hot. So he wants to have long hair for some reason. For some reason. Some reason. Then Joel will get to pick on him for having long hair again. So. Yep. Oh, um, what's it? 
Oh, here's, here's one of my favorite questions I like to ask my guests. What is something that current Mason would like to tell past Mason about shooting? Uh, as, as a through line, that would be, that would, uh, that would work across various, uh, if I can break my, my shooting into sort of like generations, right. Mm-hmm. You can sort of break it into like one or two year subsections where you're like, Oh yeah, I was wrapped around like this idea back then. Like, I wish I could fix that. You can't address any one of those at one time. But in general, right, I'm the sort of shooter where I'm always going to naturally want to outshoot the pace of my sights no matter what. If I do like my finding 100 drill, right, I'm always going to land the actual like best score is going to land slightly left of center to where my comfort zone is. Like I always want to go a little bit too fast by nature. So with that comes the understanding or should come the understanding that I don't have to try to be fast. I don't have to like make a concerted effort to like make the time happen. It's all about discipline and refinement and getting the points consistently. Right. So what separated me from being like 89% and 95% and at the same respective matches, like 22nd and third respectively was totally the appreciation that I don't have to go out and try to pull a rabbit out of a hat to make, to make things happen. Right. Like if I just go out and I prioritize solely on the vision and making sure that I'm seeing and calling every shot in real time, that will be plenty. Like I'm, I'm more than efficient enough, more than fast enough to make the time happen, or at least be comparable in a way that will lend a good enough score. I don't have to go out and get sucked into the sensation of speed or the sensation of effort to make the score be what I want it to be. And so that's something that separated me from that's been this idea is something that I know intellectually, but it's been between me and success so many times. It's something that I haven't been able to fully take on somatically until very recently, right? Until probably, mm-hmm. until probably the beginning of this year, like every match I've shot this year, I felt like, okay, I'm doing the thing that I said I was going to do. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that that core concept is something that's sort of transcended generations of my shooting and is still going to continue to be the thing that I have to preach to myself more. Right? <laughs> Oh, angry. So like <laughs> yeah. even through day one and two at nationals, right? Like I did a really good job of sticking to my system saying, Hey, you focus on your vision. You don't get sucked into trying to make this happen at speed really quickly. Things are going to go well for you, right? Like all you, mm-hmm. that's all you have to do. I went into day three, you know, I got wrapped around this idea of like, Hey, how awesome would it be if I won this match? And then I did mm-hmm. all kinds of stupid shit, right? I did all kinds of stupid shit that I got down to the point that nothing I was going to do was going to matter. Right. So that's, that's my continued focus. Like going into this last match at where I shot at area seven, there was only two stages that didn't go like pretty well, perfectly to plan. And on both of them, I was like, Oh wow, this is a really up close, fast paced stage. This is the kind of thing that I'm threatened by. I know Max is going to like shred this shit because he excels at this kind of thing. I have to push to try to pick up time and guess what happened. I shot a pile of freaking points down. The time was the same as it would have been if I had called every shot. Right. And in general, it's a shit show. Like I clipped, I clipped a wall that ultimately like you can never say anything costs you match. No one mistake costs you match. You can, should be able to have the mistake and still should be good enough to overcome it. But if you look at the score, you know, the practice score, what if with, without that cost me the damn match, right? Like if I hadn't done mm-hmm. those stupid things, if I had stayed true to myself, it would have been better. Right. Mm-hmm. So that same core concept, plenty fast enough to make it happen. Right. You don't, you, you just have to trust what you're seeing in real time and then staying true to that. If I could do that consistently, I mean, I, I'd, I'd, I'd be afraid of myself, mm-hmm. but yeah. Now, would you say that like you're a, or at least you were a hoser more than a turtle? Absolutely. Yeah. 
still am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I'm the kind of person where I'm wired to like, if I go shoot a 32 round stage, if I just do what like feels natural, I will naturally rack up like between eight and 12 Charlie shooting production. It's like yeah. anyone that shot production knows it's completely unacceptable, right? At almost any, you know, scoring circumstance. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a lot of Charlie. That's a lot of lo- that's a lot of lost points in minor. That's a lot, even in limited, right? Even in major scoring, that's a lot of lost points. Yeah, that's at least what twelve down, twelve points down in limit in, my, in, in major, major, yeah, or twenty five or so. And if not, yeah, it's that's. I naturally want to outshoot the pace of my sights. I always want to like to to move a little bit faster than my vision can facilitate. So I have to remind myself constantly that if you just see everything in real time, then the time will be there. Mm-hmm. that's a good way to put it yeah i, I kind of have that a little bit too but my, my more problem at this point is looking over the gun than looking through the gun yes i can see that mm-hmm. so are you trying to do more target focus shooting and stuff or what um i shoot carry optics and so i'm pretty much target i am target focused but i guess my point i guess I, i'll just my vision isn't looking through the sights and it's it's a lot about shot calling as well of not, you know, still figuring out shot calling and, you know, that you've always, I've always had this little problem of look over the gun, check my work and then move on instead of, being, oh, okay. Yeah. Instead of being able to call the two alpha or the alpha close Charlie move on. Have you messed around with taping over your lens? Yes. I, um, not in live, but in dry, I've done the, the taped lens. I recommend doing a live fire too, because working with confirmation two shooting and maintaining hard target focus, like that's what's going to facilitate you learning to do that better. Mm-hmm. Write that down. Um, yeah. Um, now, Mason, who have been some of your biggest supporters, not including your sponsors, but maybe some shooters or other people like that? Who's been your biggest uh, supporters for you? I mean, my folks facilitated my shooting from the time I was like 14 to you know, 22 or whatever. So I, I can't thank them enough. I never would have been able to be involved in the capacity I was if it wasn't for them. So I, they're they're the biggest ones. Uh, as far as other shooting mentors, Jerry Tetro, like I, I mentioned, he, he got me hooked up with my deal with the SIG Academy. He was an awesome coach to me. Got me all the way to master. So uh, Ben has been a really good one for me. Not always through his own knowledge. I mean, I didn't, I never even met him formally, I think until like 2018, basically. But he, uh, he's, he's been a really good one just for the content he's put out. And he's, as of late, he's been a really good backboard for me for ideas uh, and all kinds of others. I mean, I, I can't even, it would be impossible for me to think of all of them. Quantix, uh, mm-hmm. of course, been an awesome one. He's been, a, you know, one of the foremost providers of new ideas about practical shooting in contemporary history. Uh, so he's, he's definitely a great one as well. I mean, it, it would be unfair for me to try to list them all because I'll invariably forget a bunch. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to have that many people, you know, just know that they're behind you and that they've helped mold you in some form of way. Absolutely, yeah. Jake Hetherington's actually been a really good one too, and we've never actually gotten to train together, but he's been an awesome competitor to me over the years. I mean, we've we've been. He's been. What's cool about Jake is he's been like that much ahead of me since I met him. So he, and he, we've always been like really good friends. He's been a really good, I, I don't know if you could say a mentor because I've never actually gotten a train with him, but we've always been really good partners for each other. Mm-hmm. He's very comparable to you at that point then, you know? Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Now, as we're getting near the end of the show, um, I always ask this question. I stole this from another podcast because I liked it. And sure. 
what are things that people can either start doing or stop doing to get better? Oh, I mean, that's a broad one. And it's okay to repeat yourself from whatever you've dropped on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. uh, It depends totally on on the person, right? So I think the the most important thing people can do probably is take take a moment to honestly diagnose where you're at with your shooting. And what I mean by that is not just like say, you know, how can I analyze what I'm doing and how can I do it better? But take a moment to, like I alluded to, sit down, decide how much money, time, energy do I have to dedicate this? What is it I want to get out of it? What are my goals? How can I facilitate those? And what do I need to like, what's between me and kind of accomplishing those. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, if you take like, you know, 30 minutes at the beginning of each season, you do this once at the beginning of each season and say, where is it I'm going with this? What am I trying to get out of it? Right. Like, you're going to be so much better, so much more well-directed and centered in your training as far as what it is you're trying to do versus just going out and wasting all kinds of time and energy in a goal that may not even be achievable for you or, you know, way like under calibrating your goals and way underselling your potential compared to what it is you really want to do. I mean, I feel like a lot of the frustration and burnout I see in people is honestly just that like half of my, you know, well, that might be kind of an overstatement, but several of my, my private clients is like, I feel like I act more as a therapist to them than I do a coach, right? <laughs> no, not, not a word of a lie. It's like, you know, I have like someone will message me and they'll be like, I'm selling all my shit. <laughs> and I'm like, Whoa, what happened? I'm like, Oh, well, I'm, I'm sick of loading 45 and you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I get, I work all this, these long shifts and I come home and I want to do this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, most of those conversations end with you have to sit down, have a conversation with yourself and decide what is it you're trying to get out of this. And you need to probably redefine what success means to you because based on your lifestyle or how much energy you have or how much money you have to dedicate, you know, being, you know, as good as Eric Raffel is not a realistic, you know, goal for you. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably the most important thing people can do to sort of, get the most out of it because for 99.9 percent of people all they're going to get out of this sport is enjoyment right Mm -hmm. yeah it's most for most of us it's a hobby that we yeah yeah it's the it's i don't even think it's the top two percent of shooter top shooters get you know do this for a living really yeah i don't i don't get paid to shoot matches so Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think maybe the only people who get paid to shoot the match are probably like max and jj yeah, I, I don't even envy those guys in that way. So. No. Well, you, JJ's traveling across the world, well, across the states, teaching classes. I think Max does to some extent, but more he does some teaching also. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the very, very top pinnacle of the sport to get paid to actually go go shoot this match. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's not even necessarily an enviable position. It sounds awesome for people that are like attracted the idea of like representing a company and stuff, but. I've more or less done that and it has its benefits, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't, it'd be, I don't know. It, it One of the best the things that happened in my shooting was, was deciding I wanted to win for me and not just because I felt like I had the pressure of representing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause those a, people a lot just, started happening for me when I did that. And the people who support you don't really care if you win or lose as long as you're doing it for you, you know, and there's some mutual benefit to the, your, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like if I, if I wasn't winning, like the sponsors I have probably wouldn't give a shit what I had to say. Right. Mm -hmm. But like I started winning a lot more when I decided that 
the pressure was what I brought with me and that I'm the only, I'm going to care more than anyone else does if I don't win. So just go do what I know I have to do to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I think I, that's a lot of people, so you just, just worry about your shooting. No one else gives a shit how you're doing unless you're like the top guys in the sport, then they care. It's freeing. I should share a story as I share this all the time with people. And I think it's revolutionary. One of the, the smartest things anybody said to me that helped help me improve stage and match pressure was from Daniel Horner at one of the AMU clinics, the junior clinics they used to run. Mm-hmm. He told me pressure more or less is what you bring with you, right? That's, that's the way people would conceive of it nowadays. But what he said was, you know, if you're about to shoot this stage, you're nervous, you're nervous. Why you're nervous because you don't know what's going to happen. Right. It's not that you're afraid of sucking or that you're like, you know, anxious of winning. It's simply that you don't know what's going to happen. So if I sat you, you know, you're right here, you're on the line, you're about to make ready. I come over to you with a crystal ball and I say, hey, bro, you're going to totally fall on your wiener this stage and you're going to break your wrist and you're going to suck and you're going to like zero the stage essentially. And you're, you're going to have to crawl back through the rest of the match. Okay. And you'd be like, well, yeah, this is going to suck, but okay, I guess I could deal with that. Like, you know, I've, I've done things like that before, so that's no big deal. And that would be that, like, right. It's, it's wouldn't be like, Oh my God. Oh, I'm going to have heart palpitations. I'm going to suck. Like, I don't know what to do. It's like, if you knew what was going to happen, it wouldn't bother you as bad. Everyone sucked before conversely, right. Same thing. If they tell you, you're going to win this stage by like by 10%, you'd say, Oh, sweet. Let's go do it. Right. And it doesn't affect what you're going to do in that way at that point. Right. Like once you're disarmed, you disarm the threat of what's going to happen. It makes it way less scary, not knowing what's going to happen. And you can address that the same way just by being mindful of the thoughts that are running through you and saying, oh, wow, I'm feeling really nervous. I kind of feels like I'm going to go like shoot out like half a liter of, you know, whatever in, in the port or whatever. Right. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. You care about doing well. You're going to be nervous. But you have to remind yourself that that's only what you think. And this is only because you don't know what's going to happen. So if you just go focus on your process, it'll probably be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people need more for focus on the process than the results. For sure. That is for sure. Well, Mason, we need to pay the bills to your sponsors. Who are your sponsors? Yeah. Uh, Great Guns is, is, is my title sponsor. So they are, they're the foremost purveyor of all your uh, SIG 320 and, and P series guns. They work in HKs too, but not a lot of people shoot those for competition. Uh, they were the only company that that Sig Sauer itself trusts to work on their stuff and do R&D for them. And that's for a reason. It's because they're mm-hmm. solid units. Uh, I also have Blue Bullets. They they blew me up with bullets pretty good. If you're looking for for relatively inexpensive bullets that are really quality, it's 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 up there and inarguably like a top like two or three coated bullets going. Super fair pricing, really good customer service, etc. They help out the sport all the time. So it's a really good company to support. Also, I uh, have BSPS, the the Pro Shop, Ben's Pro Shop. You know, they're, they're good. Their customer service is also awesome. Their pricing is always fair. Uh, GX Products, old Leif Kunkel. I don't know if you know him, but he's a wicked good dude. Uh, I, I've used, like, all kinds of holsters. And the most important thing to me is that the people that you're supporting are, are cool. And Leif is really cool. And on top of that, the fit and finish of the shit he makes is absolutely fantastic, right? So if you've seen the holsters that have the latches on them, that have, like, the, the, the friction lock, he makes those. And they're really good. Uh, I also have Henning, Henning Group. So for you know, I do their flat pads for prod and you know their plus sixes or whatever they're called for CO, and those are really good also. Mm-hmm. I like that for the SIG 320 mags, they're especially for CO. That's a plug and play solution. Like you buy the pad, 
it's a little bit expensive, but it comes with a gram spring and it's like you literally just slap it on your mag and it's good to go. It's guaranteed 23 plus and you don't have to dick around filing stuff to make it fit the gauge or to get the extra rounds in or anything like that. It's set. And to me, that's important. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, I think that's all of them. Yeah. Besides your own logo, but that's your logo. So it's, yeah, I, I don't, I, I can't really say I sponsor myself. That just is kind of organic, but yeah, lane shooting cool. and training, right. If you want to take a class with me, bang my line, we'll make that happen. Mm-hmm. And what's your, uh, where can they get a hold of you on social media? What? At Mason Lane shooting. I think that's, I don't think that's all more. I'm pretty sure spaces or whatever. We've searched Mason Lane shooting. You'll find me same thing on Facebook. Uh, I have a regular Facebook account too, but I may not, I may not, if I don't recognize you, I probably won't add you. So just follow me on Instagram and message me if you want me to, to, to get a hold of me. Mm-hmm. Email me at uh, masonlane.lsat at gmail if you want to book a class with me. And uh, I think that's everything. I don't have like TikTok or, you know, or any, anything, I, anything fancy. I think like we're a little old for TikTok. I mean, isn't that I think for, like, so. it just doesn't yeah. appeal to me. They seem to kind of be not screening anything on there. That might be the next place for the firearms community to retreat to. Yeah, that's true. Maybe maybe, maybe have some cool videos, but I mean, most of the time it's the damn it's, wild west. Yeah, I mean that's true. Well, Mason, I greatly appreciate you coming on today. This has been a big one for me, and I really enjoyed it getting to pick your brain a little bit and get to know you a little bit better. It's always a good time. In the future, we'll probably have to have you back on when you take uh, take down the goat. I'll just say here, when you take him down. Sure thing. Right. I'll do my best. There you go. And then I want to thank you guys once again for tuning in for another episode of Manny Talk Shooting. I greatly appreciate it. If you enjoyed this content, check out the YouTube channel, Manny Things, that's out there. And until next time, get out and do the things.